You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, what's up? It's Craig. Quick word before we start the podcast, because the commanders made a switcheroo on us. We recorded this around 9 a.m. on Monday morning. We finished around 10 a.m., and... Immediately after the commanders announced that Trent Williams and Robert Griffin III were being added to the voting for their all-time 90th anniversary team, we talked about both players, actually, Trent more than Robert, not being on the initial list to be voted onto the 90 and their potential places on that list. Obviously, we didn't know that right after the podcast, they would be added for consideration. So... With that said, uh, you will now understand the context of the conversation. Everything we said was still relevant, and now, uh, obviously, you can vote based off of uh, the information that we give, in part, as well as your own recollections of both players who certainly have their place in Washington's franchise history, but wanted to note that before we hit play. So, uh, with that noted, let's hit play. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. On a Monday, welcome in to Take Command. I'm Craig Hoffman. That's Logan Paulson. LP, how was your weekend, buddy? It's good, man. I'm still on vacation, so, you know, it's great to be up here near the water, my parents' house. It's awesome. So, you know, still not quite back in work mode yet, but this is always a nice bring-me-back-to-reality type of deal. And we got some great stuff on the show today. So the Commanders have put out a list of the, well, 10 years ago, they put out their 80 best players for their 80th year anniversary. Obviously, this year is year 90. They just put out their commemorative patch that they'll wear on their uniforms this year. And with it, there's a bunch of promotional material. And that is going to include the 90th anniversary list. There are some names to talk about on it that Logan played with. Uh, Logan, I, I guess they put 15 candidates out there. You must have been number 16, man. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've come to this realization that I will never be on any kind of meaningful list in my entire life uh, with, with regards to football. And what it's about just, a U- it's a, could you, you think you could crack like a UCLA list? You know, it's funny. I wasn't even that good at UCLA. I mean, I was like, I started all my time there and I played really well. But like, it wasn't like, there's nothing that like differentiated my career. And like, when I look at these lists, like you need something to like make, like everyone's good, right? When you look back and you watch these, even these old teams, like they're all good players for their era. But what is the thing that separates you from the rest of the pack? And I think that's the thing that's um, more interesting to me about about these lists is what is what are these things that make someone good and then good to great kind of relationships? Yeah. So we'll talk about the guys who did make it on the 15 and, and who might be our 10 or at least some of the votes for our 10. But also there's a pretty large omission. And we will talk about that as well. We'll get to a mailbag question at the end of the podcast. But Logan, let's start with the offensive skill guys getting together out in California, which we learned that was going to happen at Terry McLaurin's presser last week. So McLaurin uh, gets up there, gushes about you know all kinds of different stuff and is just fantastic at the podium because he's Terry McLaurin and he reminds you why you like that guy so much instantaneously. But he says, 
right after I'm done with this, I'm hopping on a plane. I'm headed out to California to get together with Carson. And it turns out it was not only Carson, but it was Carson, Jahan, Terry, Taylor Heineke was out there to throw with those guys as well. Cole Turner, the rookie tight end, was out there. Curtis Samuel, I believe, was out there. So and I'm curious if you were ever a part of any of those like throwing sessions in the offseason, if guys you know, were doing that when you were playing, and, and if you were ever involved in any of those. And, and what's the value of these guys getting together specific to this group? Because I actually do think Terry and Carson specifically getting together is it's not like a championship winning big deal, but like it's not nothing. Yeah, no. So when in 2011, the lockout year, the this team had like a full on seven on seven. So it wasn't mandatory, but it was about as close as mandatory as it probably could have gotten. I remember I stayed at Chris Cooley's house and we drive out to James uh, Mason, James Madison University and we do passing and Honestly, like that was one of the, um, you know, a big part of my growth because you got to kind of meet other guys on the team and kind of build those relationships. And also you got play, a lot of players coaching you, you know, a lot of like Chris Cooley insight. He was always great about doing that anyway, but it was just he was the coach for that period and kind of talking with him. And then it allowed you to kind of build those relationships with the quarterbacks. And I think it's extremely advantageous. And as I got older, and, uh, you know, later in my career, you know, in Atlanta, Matt Ryan would do that um, every offseason pretty much. And I never went to one of those because I was very covetous of my time with the family. Because unlike those guys that live in Atlanta and stayed with their family the whole offseason, like I was moving to a new city to do the offseason program there. So I was like, well, I get 30 days with my family, so I'm going to make sure I capitalize on that. But I do think it's right. very, very advantageous, um, especially in the case of Terry, who missed OTAs, because this is a time for him to kind of build on some of that communication and build that relationship with the quarterback. And obviously, I think uh, the young guys, like it's great to see Jahan out there. The fact that Cole Turner went, I think, is really special because, you know, one of the things, you know, we talked about Austin Hooper on this podcast before. And, you know, I mentioned that how, you know, I just said be in the building more and that'll kind of help foster a relationship with the organization. But Hoop also made a big commitment to to going wherever Matt went for throwing, Hoop did that. And it just, it helped kind of cement that relationship and helped cement that trust. So for the young guys to do that with Carson, I think is great. Um, and it, it's, again, like, are they going to be, and you know, you talked about this on your podcast about conditioning, like the beep tests and stuff mm-hmm. on your Train With The Best podcast. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is another great kind of position specific conditioning time too right. in addition to the relationship stuff that you're getting in addition to the timing stuff you're getting you're also getting guys who are going to be in football shape because they're throwing with an nfl quarterback they're running routes at nfl speeds and i think that's all all great stuff and you get to kind of hang out in la or wherever they're at you know go to the bar at night go to dinner or whatever they're going to do and that's always great for again building that relationship building that trust and that's such a big part of the offense yeah, so the thing with Terry and Carson specifically is I think they can basically make up OTAs. I mean, with, with yeah. the veteran status that those guys have, the thing that was missing in OTAs for them and the thing that I brought up multiple times on this podcast and now you know, I've been talking about a little bit on the radio show is that you want to be able to see how a guy moves. And if that's both Carson, uh, really more for Carson to understand how Terry moves. How does he get in and out of his cuts? How does he get in and out of his routes? What do his stems look like? And obviously all this stuff is different against competition and in a team setting, but you at the very least get a baseline of that stuff. And a lot of the drills you're doing in OTAs are, you know, the 
offense only, you know, they're work, you're working on your stuff, defense only, you're working on their stuff, technique based, et cetera, throwing a lot of routes on air. And then you do obviously eventually get into the team situations, but all that routes on air stuff where Jahan was able to get the extra reps and all the benefits that you talk about for guys that are as veteran as Carson and Terry, they don't need a ton of it. They just need enough to realize like, Hey, this is what it looks like when Terry runs an out. This is what Terry lo- it looks like when Terry runs a comeback. This is how he comes out of his break. This is the timing of it. This is the speed of it. And you can do that stuff on air on your own time. And they just made up that portion of OTAs. Do they make up everything they missed? No. Do they get the coaching of their actual coaches? No. But to me, that was the biggest thing is instead of the first route that Carson Wentz ever sees Terry McLaurin run in person being on their first snap together in August or I guess late July, later this month, the 28th is when camp opens. It happened early July and then they can pick back up there and much, much, much closer to where Carson and all the guys that were at OTAs picked up uh, or are picking up based off of those reps they had together uh, in, in the organized team activities and the minicamp. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think the other thing that's so important for, for fans and, and, and fans of football to understand is when you are building this relationship with a quarterback, it's not just how the receiver's running the route, it's how the quarterback sees certain coverages and how that is communicated, right? So if it's cover two, how do you want the angle of the slant to be? If it's cover two, how do you want the angle of the corner to be versus cover three? If, it's, uh, if I'm the bender, if I'm running a seam on the inside, how do you want me to run this versus quarters? How do you want me to run this versus cover two? And again, every quarterback has little different things that they like and little different preferences that they want. And so to get that kind of communication started, for Terry to kind of start adjusting his game to Carson and Carson kind of being able to communicate what he likes and doesn't like and get their vision to be the same, you know, because one of the things I was talking to my... Um, my uncle last night and he was you know what makes Tom Brady so great and you know obviously there's all these kind of things that Tom Brady does but Tom Brady also knows exactly what he wants and he's able to communicate that to the people that he's playing with right and he understands that Edelman when he runs a choice is going to break in versus this leverage and Tom's going to be able to wait a beat longer and throw that football and building that type of trust and chemistry doesn't just happen with running routes it happens with communication so again for them to get together to start communicating to start seeing things the same way and again the timing of the actual route is important like you alluded to that's 100% accurate but I think the more maybe the more important thing is is just building these communicational you know, kind of lines and kind of the vision, uh, seeing the defense in the same way. And, um, and again, that that's going to continue to build as they go through, you know, like you mentioned, training camp and all that stuff, OTA or training camp and mini and, um, preseason, excuse me. But I think that that's something that, um, really, I think needs to, needs to like the foundation needed to be laid. I'm really glad they got that started now, especially. Right. And I now have this like vision of, Terry and Carson talking about a route, doing it, and they're just like, Jahan, go play safety. And he's <laughs> like, Cole, go play this. And you know, the, 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 not picking on the rookies, but being like, hey, we need you, we need you to go, go be here. And that's the kind of stuff that can happen at these kinds of things. It's like, okay, if the safety is playing it this way, we're going to do this. And to be able to get those reps again, like you said, because I also wonder, like, how much time are they spending watching film? How much time mm. are they spending doing stuff that's beyond like, okay, let's go out there for an hour and a half and throw. Right. Because you know, that's that part's happening and they have certain things. And you know, these guys have been around long enough, especially Carson and Terry. And, and at this point, Taylor in the system too. I think it's great yeah. that, that Heineke is out there because you know, he's played with Scott Turner, basically his entire career. And so to have, 
if there is some kind of disagreement, not like a combative disagreement, just like a, a hey, well, I'm used to this. Terry's like, I'm used to this. Right. Hey, Taylor, what do you think here? Like, that's really valuable input to have someone who ter- Taylor has the experience of playing last year with Terry and also has the experience of being with Scott over, what, five, six years of his career in multiple right. different stops and, and understanding this offense at a level that, you know, he won the job last year after Fitzpatrick went out. Yeah, and I think that's that's a fantastic point. Like Matt Schaub in Atlanta used to go to these throwing things, and Matt Schaub wasn't going to build chemistry. He was there to kind of be a sounding board for for Matt. And I understand this relationship, the Heineke Wentz relationship, is a little bit different because it's it's the duration is so much shorter. But it's nice to have someone you can kind of look to and be like, you've been in the system. What is Scott going to do here? How does Scott want this? And then then we and kind of build our communication, Terry, Carson, all these other players around that framework. So it's nice to have someone there that can kind of guide the conversation when it gets into those kind of nebulous situations, which often happen in football. So I 100% agree with that. And it's very cool that Heineke went out there and did that. I think props to him because it's not always easy after being the guy to go out there and kind of play second fiddle to, um, to the new guy. But that shows that uh, great leadership and being a great teammate, and, and I think that's pretty fantastic by him. What do you think Jahan gets out of this going out there and finally, after much much wanting to, getting to be with Terry and, and meet mm-hmm. him and, and spend some time and, and watch him work? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any question that Jahan's going to be a fine pro. I don't know if he's going to be a pro bowler. I don't know, but he's going to be a fine NFL football player. Um, but I do think that when you have a guy like Terry who's been productive for a long time, it's nice to kind of see that live and in living color and again, build that chemistry and build that relationship with him. And it's someone you're going to be in the room with every single day for the next, you know, six, seven months. And so you want that relationship to be very positive. And again, I think it's just fantastic to build more chemistry with the quarterback. If I look at the best quarterback receiver tandems that I played with, they were, I don't want to say they were best friends, but they got along really, really well and they trusted each other. And, you know, even when I was down at Titan University, Greg Olson said him and Cam, they, they had this routine where if the ball was incomplete in practice, Greg knew that he could go right up to Cam and be like, hey, man, what did you see there? And they would get that hashed out even before the next play was called. And that's, this is the type of stuff that allows you to build that communication style with the quarterback. Because not every quarterback wants to be negotiating, you know, your rep of the previous play for, before the next ball is even snapped. But this allows you to kind of see what Carson likes, what Carson doesn't. And that applies not only to Terry, but it applies to Jahan, that applies to Cole Turner, that applies to Curtis Samuel. All those guys now have that opportunity to build that. And that is the, I mean, as much as people want to say it's about height, weight, speed, or whatever, it's that relationship with the quarterback and that trust that you can develop that allows you to be an exceptional receiver in the NFL. And obviously you need those other elements, those those kind of metrics, those combine metrics. But the relationship with the quarterback and understanding how he sees stuff is, I want to say, almost more important for those guys who've got the height, weight, speed stuff. That's what differentiates them. Like Julio and Matt were like best buds. They'd hang out in the locker. They'd have their notes. They'd go confirm after the meeting, oh, this is the way I saw this. This is the way I saw this. And that's why they had such fantastic chemistry. And this is just the first foundational piece of that. And it's nice that they're doing it on their own. And it's nice that they're doing it ahead of training camp. And I think that um, it bodes well for those relationships. Does it mean they're going to be best friends and everything's going to be copacetic day one? No, but it's a good starting plus starting spot. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I guess we'll see when we get out there later this month. I can't believe it's later this month. Later this yeah. month for training camp to see how that chemistry has developed. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. It's not just a podcast. It's the 25th hour of your day, your weekly source for all things commanders, right on time, your time. A list of household chores. Do them without missing a beat and listen while you work. In the car, turn mundane drives into memorable moments. With podcasts, you can maximize productivity and minimize FOMO. We're on demand, so we fit perfectly into your schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. Craig Hoffman, Logan Paulson. If you want more from us on Twitter, for me, at Hoffman Show. Uh, Logan, our goal was on the radio show to get that account to 1,000 followers by the start of the show today. And... Um, I don't think we're going to make it. How close are you right now? We, uh, we, if we can get to 500 by the start of the show, we'll be in, in good shape. We had, this is we really had a the nice Hoffman thing? Burst. Yeah, this at Hoffman Show on Twitter is what we're, what we're going for here. Oh, dude. Uh, well, dude, you didn't tell me that. I'll put something on my Instagram. If you, okay. give me something, if you give me something, I'll put it on my Instagram. That's true. And if you want Logan's Instagram, it's at Logan underscore Paulson82. I'm just going to make like a fancy graphic now that's yeah. like, follow at Hoffman Show and be like, Logan, just don't. I know this has nothing to do with you. But can you post it on your grid and like spend spend some money on promoting it as a sponsored post? No, that would that would be aggressive. Uh, but you can again follow on Twitter at Hoffman Show, where you can submit questions for our mailbags, or you can hit Logan at Logan underscore Paulson eighty two on Instagram. So uh, social media is a place where a lot of discussion about this has been happening. The Commanders announced over the weekend. I guess I guess it was late Friday. They put out some of their 90th anniversary material, including the commemorative patch that is going to be worn on the jerseys this year. And they also put out a 90th anniversary team like information. So they they did 80, they did 70 in 2002, and or 2012 and 2002, and now in 2022 they're obviously doing the 90, and they have. Uh, they have the 80 players and they're going to add 10 more. So just like the NBA 75 did theirs. Remember when you filled in on radio and you were arguing with me about NBA 75? Yeah, and that I don't went, know anything about was, NBA. Yeah, it was it went so well. Um, I think it went well. I mean, I think people were into it. I don't know. No, it was. It was, it was actually great radio despite your, uh, your less than... Uh, less than enthused knowledge base of the NBA. <laughs> Did I put that nicely without being yeah. a total jack wagon? Well, no, no, it was, it's, it, it was fair. I, I didn't know. I don't know that much about the NBA. I knew like five people and I brought those people up kind of on repeat in the conversation. But it I worked. think I brought up some great points. So. I think you did. I think you did. It's because you're, you're a smart man. Um, but so same kind of thing. They took their 50 and then added 25 new ones. No changes to the previous. Commanders doing the same thing. They have their 80 previous that were named in 02 or sorry, in 2012, and they add, they're adding 10 more, and they put 15 names out. And so the 15 names that are available here to be added to vote are some of the best names that you would expect over the last 10 years, and then some guys who didn't make the cut that were certainly eligible in that previous stint. So in alphabetical order here, you have Champ Bailey. Uh, actually, no, I guess these aren't in... These are just in a random just, order. Just go for Ch- it, yeah. Champ Bailey... Uh, 
D'Angelo Hall, Stephen Davis, Joe Lavender, Laverne Torgerson, uh, Kirk Cousins, Alfred Morris, Mike Sellers, Daryl Grant, Larry Pecatiello, uh, Chip Lomiller, London Fletcher, Chris Cooley, Santana Moss, Ryan Kerrigan. I think some of these guys are pretty obvious locks and, and certainly the faces of the franchise over the last decade and a half, two decades. Uh, and then there's some other guys that I kind of wonder, I'm like, well, you guys didn't make the cut at 80, so why do you get to make it at 90? Um, and, then, and then there's the glaring omission. Do we start mm-hmm. with the glaring omission or do we do you want to chop up some of these guys and tell some stories about some of these guys first? Um, whatever you want to do. I think if we, if we go glaring omission, I think we can talk. Let's go glaring omission first. So I think one of the things about this list is they seem to want to get guys that capture the, the best of the commander's Washington football team, Redskins history. And so what I mean by that is you're not necessarily getting the best football players, but you're getting guys who are good football players during like golden era of, of football. So like the example, like Daryl Grant, I think is an interesting one. Like he was a solid NFL player, but he didn't like statistically kill it, but he was on the three Super Bowl teams or two Super Bowl teams. So he kind of captures this moment of, of this team's history that makes them very good, right? So I think a lot of people look at this and the, the glaring omission is Trent Williams. And I think they say, well, why is he on the list? And I, and I question whether or not he captures something truly unique about the organization. Now, that's the argument I was kind of formulating in my mind when you said Trent, Million, Trent Williams was omitted. But then you get Kirk Cousins on the list. Right. And Kirk Cousins, while I think he will be, people will remember him, his career is a very solid NFL career. A guy who got paid a lot of money, did and a nice job. by the job. way, holds a ton of passing records for this organization. Yeah. Um, if he's on the list, and again, and and the and I think if he's on the list, and the way that he ended it with this organization, and kind of the friction that he had that year, why isn't Trent on the list? And I and that that to me is kind of the question because Trent was, you know, definitely top five at the position while he played here, and then now obviously is the number one offensive lineman graded by PFF. You know, he's got a ninety nine in Madden, all these different things like, and you you kind of you want to avoid the idea of kind of giving him. Uh, an award for the commander's organization for what he's done in San Francisco, but he, he played really well while he was here. And he was so, still great while he was here. Yeah, correct. I mean, and, and he overlaps with so many of these guys that I think it's, I mean, it's pure, let's call it what it is. Like it's either incredible oversight mm. or pettiness because right. the way things ended with Trent here were as nasty as any franchise player and an organization has ever ended. I mean, I was all over that story. That was mm. my time on the beat. Trent and I had a good relationship and I had good sources in his camp that, you know, I helped break some of the things that happened in that story with the cancer and with, you know, what was going on with his head and the surgeries and and you know, I was intimately familiar and then when Trent was ready to talk afterwards, he did an interview with Mike Jones and then we followed up that that uncovered some extra bombshells um, in an interview that I did. So I, I was fairly involved as as, mm-hmm. in, as involved as a media person can be in any given story. And I mean it was ugly. The thing was though that that I think is surprising about this is the ugliness was between Trent and Bruce and the medical staff right. and all people that aren't here anymore. And Trent was adamant throughout the entire time until the very end that Dan was incredibly helpful, that Dan sent mm. his private plane, that Dan, Dan was very nice about everything. And Dan was trying to do what he could to help. I think at the end, his tune may have changed a little bit because at the end of the day, like Dan sided with Bruce and, and you know, all those folks over Trent, like, they still they still shipped him out, 
but the pettiness there, if that is why this has happened, is just it's it's unbecoming, and it's especially at a time when this organization is really pushing for good PR. It's just it's a brutal mistake because if you want to evaluate it on like football terms, which is what this is supposed to be about. How many surefire Hall of Famers have played for this organization? And especially yeah. in the last 30 years. Like, you want to look at this list and Champ Bailey, who it makes the Hall the of Fame yeah. because of most of what he did in Denver. I mean, D. Hall was a great player, not Hall of Famer. You know, Stephen Davis was really good for a long time, not a Hall of Famer. You know, maybe uh, London San- is the only one. Yeah, London. London's probably a Hall of Famer. Kerrigan's probably not. Um, right. Despite the sack numbers, like Ring of Fame kind of guy. Santana would have been if he had played with any better quarterbacks he played with 14 in 14 years what about I mean, Cooley yeah I mean Cooley had I, I, I two really good years three yeah, good years I don't think Cooley was great for long enough to be a hall mm. of famer like he's unquestioned ring of fame guy yeah. um here but not good enough to be a hall of famer and Trent is a surefire potentially first ballot hall of famer right. now that first ballot status comes in part because what he's continued to do in San Francisco but if he played like 10 years here and yeah. or eight years, eight nine years, years here, yeah. something like that. He played a long time here. He played at an exceptionally high level. He was the best player on the team the entire time he was here. I, I don't know what more you want. And it's just, it's either an unbelievable oversight or it's it's nefarious. And if it's nefarious, then it, it's, uh, it's a really bad look for the organization to put it very nicely. Yeah, and like to, I guess to kind of play devil's advocate here, you know, Trent's, uh, is a guy that I have a lot of respect for as a player, but I know that the organization didn't always appreciate his kind of approach in terms of how he worked at the position. Now, Trent is a guy that, I've said this before, his, he was always prepared, he was always physically ready to go, but he wasn't a guy who was going to do the extra stuff. He wasn't going to like mentor the young guys, he wasn't going to watch extra film, and he didn't have to. He doesn't have to. He just gets it at a really high level. He intuits football at a very high level, but I know that that bothered a lot of people in the building for a long time about him, that he kind of wouldn't take on a bigger leadership role within the organization. So again, like there's a little bit of friction there. And then, you know, I talked to some of the training staff members and about Trent and, you know, they were kind of like, again, they're trying to play cover your own ass a little bit, which is totally fine. But they're like, you know, Trent is not the most um, willing guy to kind of go to a doctor's appointment. And so like it got worse as the time went on. And, um, you know, they were, again, they're trying to kind of, mitigate some of their own accountability there which i totally it makes sense they would try to do that but he did not have the best relationship with the organization during his time here again he was a fantastic player he was a fantastic teammate to me and a guy that i again i would love to see on this list he should be on this list but in terms of looking for reasons as to why potentially he's not i know a lot of people wanted more from him while he was here and potentially that's the reason why, as opposed to it being more of a, um, more of like a, uh, you know, like a pettiness over the, over how it, how, over how it finally ended, I guess is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I'm not saying anything you're saying is wrong. I just think to get, right. if that holds that much weight, like that's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. because you know, at the end of the day, it's like, well, okay, sure. But what did he give you? He gave you the absolute best left tackle play in the league not named Joe Thomas for the better part of yeah. the decade. And uh, at the end of the day, that's what you drafted him for and that's what you paid him for. Uh, and, and he delivered and, on that. So, And also, to be fair, I guess from like an evaluation standpoint, like I didn't watch all of Trent's play, pro- plays in preparation for this conversation, but I did go look at his PFF grades 
over his career. And obviously the last two years or the last year in San Francisco was insane. Like you've never seen a grade like that. They've never seen right. a grade like that. And they've right. mentioned they've that on their podcast and their news. Yeah. And, uh, but if you look at his, his time here, he was a little cyclical. Like he'd have a very good year then two kind of average years and a very good year and then two kind of average years. So again, I don't think that justifies not putting him on the list, honestly. Uh, but, um, you know, there, there might be an argument from somebody in the building somewhere saying, oh, well, he was, you know, he wasn't quite as good as, you know, Tyron Smith or yeah. Joe Thomas or, or whatever it was. Yeah. But again, like based on the other people that are on this list right now, Larry Pacicello or whatever his name is, he's a yeah. he's an assistant defensive line coach here. And so it's like, who's more impactful to the lineage of the organization? Trent Williams is is a guy that immediately comes to mind. And I know he was that coach. Larry was involved in the Super Bowl teams and was here for a very long time, 26 years or something like that. But in terms of impacting the the brand of, of the commanders, who is who's more significant? And I would say probably Trent Williams. Yeah, uh, definitely. Definitely. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about some of the guys that are on the list because uh, you play with a bunch of them. Uh, yeah. And I guess I guess we can start with Cooley because you obviously were in the room with him. Uh, yeah. What? I mean, I've worked with Chris, like I got to see the intellect and, and all the stuff that made him from an understanding level, a great player. Was it, was it simply that like, or was there more to him and the way that he played and the, you know, what he brought to a team than just like super smart guy that we got to all hear on the radio doing film breakdowns? Yeah, obviously he's a very smart guy, eccentric personality. I think that's well documented, but (laughs) obviously uh, a guy who was physically very gifted. I think he didn't get enough credit for how physically strong and fast and explosive he was, especially kind of in those middle years of his career. I mean, he ran like a four, six, nine, four, six, eight coming out of uh, college. He squatted like set like five seventy or five eighty, and he could power clean four forty five, and just a very explosive, powerful man. And people are like, well, he's you know, like his his production is because of his intellect, but he was also a very skilled athlete, and that showed yeah. up a lot in practice and in games. And he played with a kind of reckless abandon. You know, the Captain Chaos thing was a well warranted moniker. And of the guys on the list, I think there's a guy that kind of encapsulates an era more than anybody. He was the face of the franchise here. I was. You know, going to UCLA and I was looking at tight ends around the NFL and I knew who Chris Cooley was being from L.A. because of his personality, because of his production on the field. So it wasn't, you know, he, he played in an area, an era where they didn't have like a true quarterback and he became he became the organization. So to me, like that's a surefire lock for this list and a guy whose personality was larger than life. His play supported that for, you know, four or five years of his career. And I think that's, um, you know, like that to me, it's like the easiest one on the list almost outside of Fletcher, maybe. Yeah. Fletch. And then I guess, depending on what you want to do with champ because of timelines, again, like his best years were in Denver, but clearly champ was the better player than Chris. Um, and Chris would say that. Um, but the other thing I think about Cooley that, uh, you know, stories that I always enjoyed from him working with him was how he made football fun. And -hmm. like, I'm sure like you were one of the guys he did this with where, you know, he would come up with some nickname for like a muskrat or like you guys would use yeah. like animals or whatever to be able to to talk about coverages or to talk about how like the D line was split or like who you were going to double team and stuff like that. And he, he found ways to make things fun. 
that also were easy to remember. And, and I think that can sometimes be hard for if you're a really intellectual player to then be able to communicate back to someone who may not be able to be quite on your level, quite on your speed. And obviously, like you were there, which is super helpful, I'm sure, for both of you guys that you mm. guys can speak that same language. But the way in which he was able to make football fun and, and make it accessible for whether it's, you know, and his post career listeners on the radio or for his teammates or whatever, that, that seemed to be another, another special quality that he had. Um, Santana is another guy that you played yeah. with and a guy that I know very well. Um, and the guy that you obviously still work with now, um, and a future podcast guest, we think, um, <laughs> what, you know, I, Santana Moss, if he plays with better quarterbacks, it, to me is a hall of fame receiver. The, yeah. the the numbers he put up, considering who he was playing with, the offenses that he was on, with all due respect to some of the other guys that he played with, um, and some of whom are on are on this list or, or would be on this list. Um, you know, obviously Clint Portis is in a precarious situation right now. I, I think he's another guy that perhaps you look at as a potential omission here. I'd have to look back and make sure he's not on the eighty list. But um, you know, they had some they had some good players, but Santana in terms of like pure skill. You talk about like guys you knew about, and, and I grew up, I've told this story before, but like I grew up as a Steve Smith fan and as a mm. kid growing up in Greenville, South Carolina, watching 89, like do his thing for the Panthers, and that small receiver wearing 89 who was tough as nails, like Santana was one of my favorite players because he reminded me of, of Smith, mm. and the way that he played, the toughness he showed, the quickness, burst, and explosiveness he had, the ability to score from anywhere, like he is a great what if for me in the last 25 years of the NFL. Again, going back to like the idea that if he had just had better quarterback play, I wonder where he ranks on all-time lists for receiving yards, touchdowns, all that kind of stuff, considering how well he performed with some pretty rough and lean years and zero consistency and continuity. Because we talked earlier, too, about the relationship developing between Carson and Terry and like that year-over-year year stuff and how it builds and how like Matt and Julio in Atlanta have that year-over-year year stuff and how it builds. Terry or, uh, Santana literally never had that. Not yeah. one single year in his career did he play two consecutive full seasons with the same quarterback. And that's wild. And I, yeah, I think you bring up a whole bunch of great points there. And I've, and I've told this to Santana. He played probably 10 years too early. Like if he's playing in today's NFL, like he is – He's the cheetah. He was he was the cheetah before the cheetah, and they didn't know how to use they didn't know how to use him back when he was playing. Like he was playing outside receiver. He played up. He lined up at X. He lined up at Z. He played that outside position, and there wasn't a lot of flexibility or nuance or creativity in terms of getting him the football. They didn't line him up in the slot. They didn't do all that stuff. That didn't happen until Mike got here. And you know, talking to Tan about it, I was like, man, you would have been uncoverable in the slot, and then they have the ability to kind of kick outside in the way that they use Cooper Cup or something like that. Like he just was—he was ahead of the curve um, from a skill set standpoint, and people just didn't know what to do with him because they were used to these big body, physical wide receivers that kind of were your X, were your Z, kind of your stereotypical guy, like your TO kind of body type, and um, and to have a guy who was this size doing what he was doing um again was kind of one of those guys that the what if for me is if he gets in an offense today what does this look yeah. like and um and i think he, he again he's like probably a surefire hall of famer because of the way he approaches the game his competitiveness all those different things so i think that's those are important things to um to kind of consider when talking about tana and then on top of all that stuff and all the what ifs he was very very productive while he was here fantastic right. teammate fantastic dude um, and I think those are things that, um, that, that need to be considered when talking about them. And in terms of defining an era, 
Like, you know, we mentioned how Chris, like Chris Cooley defines that era and Tana played with him. And the only reason Tana doesn't define the era for me in terms of, you know, Washington football is because of his stint with the Jets and how he kind of bounced. He started his career there. But again, that's a very small blemish on that on that kind of record. Yeah, he played 14 years in the NFL, had one, two, three, four thousand yard seasons uh and and at the end of his career you know was playing a a little bit less obviously but still uh very productive in in his catches and and the the time that he did get um his 2005 season was ridiculous he had 84 catches for 1483 yards nine touchdowns and uh he also i think had a, a pretty decent i think he had some punt return stuff that year as well that's on a different part of the page and i can't scroll to it right <laughs> now uh but you know he, he just an incredible player uh anybody else on this list that you wanted to to specifically single out and talk about whether you played with them or uh or you didn't in, in, in doing research or just your yeah. general history and knowledge of the game that that sticks out i mean obviously like guys like london fletcher and ryan kerrigan again who were who were like who were the team when they were here like that was the guy that you look to when London was here on defense he was the guy that kind of stuck out as even as a player with him like just the leadership the physicality the toughness that he showed and the kind of example that he set was unprecedented for me in my career and then playing with Ryan Kerrigan being a little bit older than him and just watching his maturation and his consistency I don't think he, I don't think he was the same type of vocal leader that London was, for example, but again, very productive, a pro's pro in terms of professionalism and a guy that the organization should be proud to acknowledge in a situation like this. So I think that's totally fantastic. Both those guys, obviously, Alfred, I think is another guy that's really interesting because even though he didn't have maybe the longest career uh, of of the guys on this list, but he had three of the best back-to-back rushing seasons of any player in the history of the NFL. And I think that needs to be acknowledged and and it should be supported. You know, people talk about Stephen Davis and what he did with his over 1,300 yards rushing um, in three consecutive years. I forget the years exactly, but very, very productive, 17 touchdowns. And Alfred crushes those numbers, you know, in terms of rushing, total rushing stats. And so while his, he might not be this kind of illustrious, he might not be on the ziggurat of, of Washington football, he, I think he should be because of that production. And, um, you know, you mentioned Champ Bailey. Like, I looked up Champ Bailey because I was a big fan of his in Denver, but his time here in Washington was outstanding. He had two seasons back-to-back of five interceptions and then two seasons back-to-back of three interceptions, which is really, really, really high production for a guy in his first four years in the NFL. And that's not even talking about his tackles and his, his lockdown ability and what he did for the defense. So to have, that, to have him be productive, and obviously he didn't play a lot of his career here because he went to Denver, but I think those are interesting, interesting kind of anecdotes about those guys. And then Kirk Cousins, again, you mentioned all the passing records that he holds. Again, a guy with great leadership, great character, outstanding human being, and then to have that supported. And, and I think the important, the other thing that I admire about some of these guys is they were homegrown. You know, Ryan was drafted here. He grew up in the system. Alfred was drafted here. He grew up in the system. And Kirk was drafted here, grew up in the system. And I think those things, those variables are so important to, to consider because they, you know, like they, they were this organization from the very beginning as opposed to guys who were someplace else and then joined the team later on. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think it's, you know, talk about like moments in time and all that kind of stuff. Um, I do wonder internally what the discussion was about Robert. Um, and by the mm. way, congrats, congrats to RG, uh, just named, uh, is Randy Moss's replacement on Monday night countdown this year. Oh my ESPN. gosh. Wow. So congrats, congrats to Robert, Seriously, a guy yeah. that I got to know a little bit when he was here, obviously a guy you played with. Um, 
and you know we'll see if we can get him. I I, I don't know whether ESPN will let him do our, our little our little podcast over here. Just kidding. It's a giant podcast with lots of listeners uh, and growing. <laughs> by the way, subscribe if you haven't. Uh, but you know. I, I do wonder because for single season, there is perhaps no greater, certainly since the Super Bowl years, there's no greater single season than that 2012 season in terms right. of hype and electricity and production. You know, they haven't won a lot of playoff games. So, you know, you can't, you can't do much better than making the playoffs in, in the context of what we're talking about. And yet that was it. Like that was literally it. His 13 season, his 14 season, you know, and then ultimately in 15 is when he gets uh, pushed down to third string and Kirk is the full-time starter uh, and, you know, goes on to do what he does over the last, the next couple of years before ultimately departing from Minnesota. Um, but I do wonder if there's any internal discussion about Robert uh, in terms of that hype and electricity and, you know, what it was like. If And at this point, look, there aren't that many people in the organization left from that 2012 season. They've, they've changed mm-hmm. over everything. Um, but, uh, you know, if you talk to fans, like, that's still kind of, it's almost like people forget that that they won the division and made the playoffs in 15 with Cousins and you know I know we obviously talked about it with Will last week as, as someone who was on that team and you know that how good that offense was and all that kind of stuff but that didn't that didn't touch what it was in 12 from my understanding of it I wasn't here in 12 but you know the way the way people talk about it uh it's it's not the same and so yeah I, the, I mean the emotion around that 2012 season was pretty fantastic I mean it was I was listening to John Kimes' podcast, and if you, you should go check that out if you're listening here and you're not listening to that. But he had Niles Paul on, and Niles Paul was like, oh, 2012 was the best season of my football career. And I felt the same way. And it's not only that we were winning football games, but it was because the 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 atmosphere around the team was so fantastic. And a big part of that was Robert and the excitement around him and what this team could be and... Um, I think you're right. I think in terms of capturing a moment, that would be a really interesting name to put on this list. He'll never be on this list because of, I think, the stuff that's happened after. You know, And, like, and honestly, like we can say all that and also say he doesn't deserve to be on the list correct. because it's one season. It, it is one of the greatest flashes in the pan in the history of the NFL, but that's what it was. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, to bring things full circle, Trent Williams is also on that team, and Trent got screwed, and I don't like it. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Brett Boone. Would you know it? I've got a podcast going strong in our fourth year. Tune in as I sit down with my friends, some of the biggest names in sports, media, entertainment, for a lot of fun and in-depth conversations. As you know, baseball's been my life. It's been in the family for a long time, but it's a lot more than that here. It's sort of like taking a ride in a golf cart around a beautiful track. Join me every week for multiple episodes on the Brett Boone Podcast, available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Take Command podcast from Odyssey Sports. Spoken Paulson there, Craig Hoffman here. Let's wrap up. Let's nerd out a little bit. Let's get into some. Let's get into some advanced stats to wrap up the podcast. Uh, Mailbag Monday question that has to do with average depth of target, which mm. is essentially, do you expect a deeper average depth of target this year with Carson Wentz? as opposed to last year with Taylor Heineke. Obviously, the arm strength is completely different, but if you look at the stats last year, it's not like Carson was pushing the ball down the field. If you look, so average depth of target is like how far down the field are you throwing the ball in the air? Um, So Carson last year is not pushing the ball down the field a ton in Indianapolis. He and Taylor's numbers are almost exactly the same. Obviously, now Carson will be playing in Taylor's offense, if you will, you know, curtailed to him. But do you expect... Washington with Wentz to push the ball farther down the field this year and to see a higher average depth of target. 
So this is a really fantastic question, and I think it's fantastic because it, it, it really delves into a lot of kind of football nuance. And so what I'll start with is when you look at the Indianapolis offense and what they were doing with Carson there, is they really made a concerted effort to insulate him from, from pressure, from making tough decisions, and a lot of that stemmed from working the quick game stuff. And they really kind of put their eggs in that basket they ran a ton of keepers. Again, those are simpler reads for him. Not a crazy depth of target. And they really, it seemed like they were trying to offload a lot of stuff from him. And so during the offseason evaluation, obviously he has the highlight plays where he's launching, ejecting the football from his hands and it's pushing the football down the field. He has that skill set. This offense here in Washington is built on vertical passing game, right? So if you look at the quarterback, when, when uh, look at this offense when... Uh, when Heineke was here, for example, the offense kind of shifted or morphed or evolved to fit Heineke, which is a guy who doesn't have a strong arm. So there's a lot of horizontal stuff as opposed to a lot of vertical stuff. So you kind of say to yourself, I think Scott Turner will try and insulate Carson, but there will be more big plays in this offense because of Carson's ability to push the football down the field and also the personnel here. Like we mentioned Terry, we've talked about his ability to kind of push vertically in a way that's very unique to him. Jahan has looked outstanding during the OTA period. Curtis Samuel, another big play kind of guy, but a guy that's maybe not going to help that depth of target too much. So I think there will be more big plays in the passing game, pushing the ball down the field from Carson this year. But in addition to that, it's not only pushing the football down the field, it's also sustaining drives. And when you sustain drives on third and five or third and six, whatever it is, those are shorter opportunities to throw the football. And if the, if the offense is on the field more, the average depth of target, I think, will find kind of a lower, like a lower, a lower mean than what people think. Because if the offense is sustaining drives, you're going to have more shorter passes involved, even though you have added larger plays to the offense. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, and I think it just depends on how they call it in terms of that stuff too. Because I do think, though, you get like the longer you're on the field, the better chance you have to get to the areas of the field where you call your shot plays where you Correct. can add a big giant chunk you know if you're if you're forced to punt after one first down and you never make it past your own 35 yard line then you're probably not calling a shot play you get all of a sudden in that that even with Carson's arm you know minus 40 nevertheless midfield plus 40 area like that's the area where, where you're in the strike zone for for a guy like him and you want to see if you can get one into the end zone um on a big play that's when you send terry on the on the deep ball whatever and so i i do think like overall you're unquestionably right it will means you have converted on a lot of short quick efficient stuff maybe not quite as short as last year but certainly right. plenty of that stuff like your slants and you know look they also want to get the ball into the hands of gibson and mckissick and you know that's that's negative yards on your average depth of target a lot of times because you're throwing the ball behind the line of scrimmage and so at the end of the day I think higher execution is going to lead to a higher number because they will get more shots. I think Carson is going to have, like even on some of the, the, the plays that they ran last year, Carson makes a different read and throws the ball farther down the field because he's more comfortable doing it mm. and has the, the physical talent to know that he can get a ball there. So it should go up, but I don't know that it'll be some dramatic jump because Ooh. Carson also very clearly, you know, like he was with Frank Reich last year and knows him as well as anybody. Um, you know, and they, it's not like they were pushing the ball down the field like crazy. They did have Jonathan Taylor, and, and their offense was very based off of him. But I, I think it'll be better. I don't think it'll be some, you know, crazy like Patrick Mahomes looking number. Correct. And I think also you got to look at personnel in Indianapolis. Like Michael Pittman's their number one, who's a very good player, but he's not 
necessarily like a deep threat. He's more of a possession, big body type guy. Yeah. T.Y. Hilton was that deep threat, but I think he's kind of on the declining aspect of his, of his career. And the next two leading receivers for them were Jonathan Taylor and then uh, the tight end, Moali Cox, who's a very good football player. But again, those aren't guys who are getting the ball down the field. And right. so to have this staple of kind of fast athletic guys, I think is important. But also, just as a case study for depth of target, Tom Brady went from New England, where he had one of the lowest depths of targets in the NFL, to Tampa Bay, where Tampa Bay's offense led the NFL in big plays last year. I think they had 76 explosive pass plays. And his depth of target did go up, but it wasn't like he was leading the NFL in depth of target after that, right? Because he, he checks right. the ball down a ton. He works a lot of quick game. They do a lot of different stuff in terms of allocating the football. And um, I think that's also important. Like Just because the big play numbers will go up, and I think you alluded to that as well, it doesn't mean that the depth of target will be the best in the NFL or the highest in the NFL because that's not that's not sound offensive process, right? You need to attack all three levels of the field with the pass game, just like you need to have different runs that complement each other in the run game. You can't just be a one-trick pony. And I know we've talked about kind of jokingly running that, you know, vertical offense, like the, the, uh, the PI offense. offense. Yeah. And I think that there is there is something to that. But if Carson can handle more than that and you paid him and, and you bring him in here because you think he can – I think that depth of target, yeah, of course it'll be higher, or I'm assuming it will be higher, but I think it's also important to understand that healthy offense doesn't necessarily mean, is not, depth of target is not a good indicator of healthy offense. Right, right. So to answer the question, it should be higher than Taylor's last year. It should be higher than Carson's last year, but that is not to say that they're going to run the all-PI offense and be chucking the ball downfield all over the place. And that is also... Uh, is, as much as uh, it will be to the chagrin of my good friend Jane Coaston, the inventor of the RPI <laughs> offense, uh, that will that that's probably a good thing at the NFL level. All right, uh, that's it for this week's podcast. Uh, TBD on what we do on Thursday. There's a chance we have Warren Sharp on the show. Um, he's working on finishing up his preview book. When he is done, he is going to connect with us and hop on the show, so we're very excited for that. As we mentioned, guys like Santana uh, certainly in the mix to come on, so... Basically, what you should do is subscribe to the podcast and then whoever's on the show or if it's just more great football conversation between the two of us, you'll have it right there. Spotify, Apple, Odyssey app, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. For Logan, I'm Craig. Thanks for listening to Take Command and we'll see you on Thursday.